From the Rome Broadcast Center, this is Take Two. May Martinez. L.A. is about to get dangerously soaked with rain. Now, if you have to be out and about, we'll tell you what areas to avoid if you can. Plus, since the rain should let up by the weekend, if you're thinking about going somewhere to eat now that it's allowed, hear how restaurant life in L.A. may be changing since the last time you could sit down while dining out. It's all ahead on Take Two. From 89.3 KPCC and KPCC.org, this is Take Two. I mean, Martinez, thanks for being with us today. Coming up. Of course there's pushback. I think that's great. Let's get the pushback out in the open. Let's fight it out and let us change. We continue our conversations about social justice reform and talk with noted sociologist and L.A. gang expert Georgia Leap about how we all get there. That's ahead. First, though, the weather. California has been deep in its rainy season for over a month, but just now we're finally getting some serious wet weather. And that's wonderful because it's really been dry for a while. But the rain is expected to be really heavy. And along with that comes all the bad parts risk of mudslides and debris flows. KPCC science reporter Jacob Margolis is here to tell us all about this upcoming storm. So, Jacob, what kind of weather are we expecting? How much rain? How intense? Because we're hearing that it is going to be very intense. Yeah, so it appears we're in for a little bit of a walloping, in part because we're getting hit by a decently strong atmospheric river, which is what it sounds like. It is a river of water in the sky that is uh, going to be bearing down upon us very shortly. Here in California, they are crucial for providing us with snow and rain, and we've been waiting for this like for a long time, it feels like. And usually we see a few strong uh, rivers throughout our rainy season that really help us out a lot. For this particular one, Southern California, we'll see the majority of the rainfall between Thursday and Friday. And with this, with these atmospheric rivers, comes a risk of flooding and mud flow over the next few days. So what conditions might determine that? Yeah, it depends on where you are, uh, but the risk is there that we could see some sort of debris flows. Uh, I'm thinking particularly in canyons. I feel like Topanga Canyon, uh, some of one I'm familiar with, uh, it always has some sort of rocks fall into the road when it rains. Uh, then it gets shut down until the problem gets fixed. But if we are going to start talking about like bigger debris flow, uh, there are certain things that we should watch for, including is the rain coming down at a rate of at least half an inch or an inch per hour? That's the rough threshold that we look for when anticipating bigger flows uh, and problems that come with them. This storm looks like it'll hit that threshold in some places. That said, we may hit that threshold and the hill near your home will be fine, or maybe the rainfall doesn't seem that heavy and then a hill gives out. There are a lot of factors that influence these issues, like what kind of vegetation type is on the mountain, how steep the mountain is, the placement of drainages that channel the water and debris. There's a lot of opportunities for physics to mess with us. Yeah, now what uh, areas are most at risk for problems over the coming days? The first place that comes to mind, of course, is uh, all those areas hit uh, this summer by the Bobcat fire. Yeah, absolutely. Without a doubt, the recent burn areas have the highest risk. I called up the United States Geological Survey's Landslide Hazards Program, which, yes, exists, and they calculate how much of debris flow threat exists in different areas. And they told me that the Apple Fire, El Dorado Fire, Silverado Fire, Ranch 2 fires, all these fires from this past fire season that stretch all the way from L.A. to Riverside to San Bernardino counties are all concerning. Like the rain in those areas, it will be a concerning thing. Some a little bit more so than others. But the one 
fire that they emphasize again and again as being the most worrisome is the Bobcat Fire burn area above Pasadena. Now, the San Gabriel Mountains are already one of the most dangerous places in the world for mud flows, according to the wow. USGS. And when you add bare burned ground, that risk goes up. The, you know, they're, they're really steep. Yeah. And there's a lot of people living at the bottom of them. They get hit with fires often. Now, okay, so if if people are unsure about the level of risk in communities, uh, where do they go to get uh, information? Yeah, the National Weather Service will be issuing uh, flash flood alerts for certain areas. But if you want to look at a map, the USGS has a site that can break down which drainages, like it's very specific, which drainages are at the highest risk of debris flow. Um, We'll be posting an article on LAS.com in in a short while, and we'll make sure to have a link up there. All right. So how are these areas then getting ready for the rain? They know it's coming, so they know they got to get ready. Yeah, I spoke with LA County Public Works, and they're watching the situation, but they are not anticipating any big mud flows at this point. They said they sent out engineers to talk to homeowners in higher-risk areas about how to lay out sandbags that are they could go get at fire stations that could help divert water. And if things get really bad, which, again, not anticipated, then evacuation notices could be issued via those blaring alerts on your phones. Mm. are called wireless emergency alerts. At that point, L.A. County Fire, L.A. Sheriff's Department, and other departments will set up some sort of joint command that'll have some information for evacuees or will tell people over their phones what's going on. Um, they, too, have a site. Public Works has a site you can watch. Uh, it'll update tomorrow and let you know where the highest risk areas are. And again, we'll link to that on LAS.com. All right. So, OK, we know that uh, they're not anticipating evacuations, but if they are needed, are our officials prepared? I'm just thinking that uh, no one thought all of that mud was going to spill down on Montecito a few years back. I remember how much of a shock that was to everyone. And it was a, a big effort to get people out of the way and find place for them to stay. I think if anyone tells you that they're really prepared for a disaster, you need to take that with a grain of salt. You know, I was reassured that county officials will be watching closely. If some sort of effort is needed to get people out, they'll do that. Um, But the truth is that, like, you need to anticipate what could happen and be prepared for a possible devastating outcome, especially if you live in a high-risk fire and mudslide area near some of our mountains because they're really steep and it's very dangerous there. Um, You know, disasters are just chaos. And if something does happen... Even if they have stuff set up, it'll take them a while to get recovery efforts going. So every person out there needs to take personal responsibility, get your stuff together, get your go bags ready, which are always good to have. Um, But, you know, fingers crossed everything will be okay. I'm crossing them right now. That's KPCC science reporter Jacob Margolis with our rainy weather update. Jacob, thanks a lot. All right. Thank you. All right, moving on. Since the beginning of the pandemic, the state's unemployment agency has struggled to keep up with claims. Last spring, applications skyrocketed 13 times above pre-pandemic levels. The Employment Development Department, or EDD for short, really has its work cut out for it. Now, a new state audit finds that many of the department's problems can be blamed on its failure to plan for a recession. And that failure has led to widespread payment delays for jobless Californians struggling to make ends meet. Here with us now to talk about the many problems facing EDD is KPCC's business reporter, David Wagner. Uh, David, so what's uh, behind this recent audit? So back in September, lawmakers ordered the state to, to carry out this audit. You know, representatives have been getting flooded with calls from constituents who applied for benefits, who still weren't getting them, who couldn't get through to anyone at EDD. 
So lawmakers wanted to know the root cause of these problems. All right, so what did they find? This audit has a whole bunch of information in there. There are a lot of failures listed from early on in the pandemic. Some of them include, um, you know, nearly half of claims getting flagged for manual review, which is very time consuming. You know, payments were delayed on almost 40% of claims. Less than 1% of calls to EDD were getting answered. And even those weren't much help because newly hired staff um, at those call centers weren't trained to answer questions yet. Um, but one of the most striking things in this audit is that many of these problems are almost exactly the same as what EDD ran into back during the last recession in 2008. So, okay, the pandemic definitely unexpected, but it sounds like these are not new problems. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the, the audit finds that EDD knew about these issues for years, but it spent more than a decade doing little to fix them. The department didn't start the process of planning for a recession until 2019, and it only published a draft of proposed solutions in January of 2020. You know, by then, the coronavirus was already spreading. So EDD had no comprehensive recession plan in place when businesses were closed and stay-at-home orders were put into effect. All right, so these problems uh, may not be all that surprising at this point. Uh, EDD has been under fire for months, but are, are people still not getting the money they're owed? Yeah, you know, for some people, these problems have not gone away. Over the holidays, the department suspended payments on 1.4 million claims, and they say the goal there was to weed out fraud in the system. But I've been hearing from folks who say they're not committing any fraud, yet they can't get their benefits restarted. They say they haven't received word from the department yet on how to fix that problem. Wow, and, and this follows some, some rather stunning news that you covered yesterday. The fraud at the EDD is even worse than we thought, so how, how bad is it? Yeah, that's right. So EDD officials held a press call yesterday to tell reporters that since March, at least 10% of all unemployment payments in the state have gone out to criminals. That's more than $11 billion in oh. confirmed fraud. They also said another $19 billion in payments is under investigation for potential fraud. And so if you add that all up, what officials are saying is that 27% of all benefits paid out by the state during this pandemic may have been linked with fraud. $11 billion in confirmed fraud. Okay, so all of those are huge numbers. So who do they say is behind the fraud? Yeah, so on that call, they said that crime rings in Moscow, Hong Kong, Nigeria, uh, all over the world have flooded the state with applications. They said that scammers are buying people's personal information on the dark web and they're using it to file bogus claims. Um, officials say that this fraud is mostly happening in the Pandemic Unemployment Assistance Program. This is a new federal program that opened up the unemployment system to more people who would normally be shut out, like freelancers. Officials say this also opened up the system to more fraud. All right, so the EDD knows it's happening. What are they doing to fight fraud? And, and what is, is what they're doing working? So the biggest step they've taken so far is to implement a new identity verification process. It's called ID.me, and basically new, applica new applicants have to go through this website to prove that they're really who they say they are. Officials say ID.me is helping to stop fraud early on in the claims process. And, they, and this new audit also found that ID.me is helping to speed up claims. So, you know, now more than 90% of claims are processed automatically. That's a huge improvement from the early months of the pandemic. However, this audit also finds that ID.me has been a barrier to many legitimate applicants. Uh, they say that 20% of people who try using ID.me can't successfully complete the process. 
And that raises concerns, you know, about more payment delays for Californians at a time when the unemployment rate here in the state is shooting back up again. Yeah, worst possible time. So what recommendations does the state to auditor have for fixing the issues? And, and what's your sense of how the agency might move forward with them? So the EDD has responded to this audit. They say that they are they agree with the findings. They're going to implement the recommended changes. The department got a new director in December, Rita Sines, and here are some of the recommendations she'll have to implement. So by March, EDD has to come up with a dashboard that shows the true number of claims waiting for payment. By May, they're going to have to start tracking how many problems their call center actually resolves. The department doesn't have data on that right now. Uh, the, audit, the audit also recommends that EDD immediately address uh, a workload that is piled up as a result of easing eligibility requirements early on in the pandemic. So basically, you know, the department made it easier for payments to go out early on in the pandemic, but now it has to go back and make sure people were actually eligible for those payments back then. The bad news here is that that's going to take a lot of work, and some Californians may have to pay back money they've already received. All right, that's KPCC's David Wagner talking about the problems facing California's unemployment department. David, uh, as always, thanks a lot. You bet. All right, as you heard earlier, L.A. is about to get soaked, dangerously so in some areas. So, again, if you don't have to be out and about, don't do it if you don't have to. Now, rain, though, is expected to let up by the weekend, which coincidentally is when L.A. restaurants will be allowed to have outdoor dining again. Now, if you do choose to go out to eat... There might be some changes in store from how it was set up before. Find out what Border Grill chef and owner Susan Feniger has planned when Take Two continues in about 60 seconds. Stay with us. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC. I'm A. Martinez. Governor Gavin Newsom's decision yesterday to lift the stay-at-home order came as a bit of a surprise to many, including some local public officials. Los Angeles County has now returned to the purple tier of COVID-19 restrictions. Now, as many of you already know, purple is the most restrictive tier, but it would still allow for restaurants to reopen outdoor dining as soon as this weekend. Many of our local restaurants and their employees have been struggling for months due to the pandemic, so we wanted to get uh, reaction to these changes uh, from one of L.A.'s longtime restaurant owners. Joining us now is Susan Feniger, co-owner and co-chef of Socolo Restaurant in Santa Monica and the Border Grill Eateries with locations in Las Vegas and Los Angeles. Susan, let's uh, start with just your general reaction to uh, Governor Newsom's announcement yesterday. What was going on through your head when you heard the news and, and how are you feeling today? Well, hi there. Um, well, I have to say we were all pretty shocked and uh, 
a little bit overwhelmed at how sudden that decision came. I mean, there had been a little bit of a heads up from the California Restaurant Association that there might be some change happening, but um, this came as a complete surprise and trying to quickly think about how do we want to take this on? How do we want to handle it? Is it a for sure thing? If it is for sure, has there been a thought process that's gone through with the kind of repercussions that could happen if we do this? If then there's, you know, a shift that happens in a week from now, how that affects us, our team, our restaurant family, and how to address that. So we all, I think, you know, yesterday and today have been really trying to brainstorm of what makes the most sense for us. What's the smartest business decision? What's the smartest decision to keep our team safe and healthy and be able to do that for the public also? You know what's amazing about your reaction, Susan? And it's a reaction that I've heard from other restaurant owners in that you would think after being closed that a business opening would be nothing but joy, right? Nothing but happiness and joy. But it sounds like it, 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 it was a weight on your shoulders a little bit. Well, it's, it is, and it's, you know, I mean, the weight on, I think, our shoulders is that, you know, when the restaurants closed down just for to-go, um, and we had to close down our out when we, when, when the state said we had to close down for outdoor seating, we had just spent a bunch of money on redoing our whole patio wow. outside trying to begin to winterize it. And then we had just sort of finished one phase one of it, and then literally we never even got to use it, and we had to shut down. So we didn't quite complete the process, and we really didn't know when we were going to be opening again. And no real sign. I mean, I think we all sort of thought maybe March, maybe April, depending on what happens with the vaccines. So I think many people sort of stopped where they were at with winterizing, not knowing, do we want to, because every penny right now that we spend is very critical. And when you start laying off people, because now the outside dining got shut down, that meant we had to lay off a number of our staff. Not that we had a big staff on because we were trying to be very conservative in what we're spending, but we had to cut back probably 60 65% of the people that were working for us because we didn't need it for service. We just were doing to go. So all those people now get laid off. Now they're all laid off. They're all trying to figure out how do they feed their family? How do they take care of, you know, their own health issues? We're trying to figure out how do we keep the people that are still working for us safe? And how do we continue to try to make, you know, to make a dent in sales so that, now that we've cut already, our sales are at, say, 30 35%. Now we have to cut that even in half because oh, wow. now only, we're only doing to-go. So it's a big dilemma with economically, how do you survive this? How do you take care of the people that are no longer working for you and help them? And at the same time, how do you try to say, okay, does it make sense to open back up or is that putting anybody at risk? So it's, there's a lot of complex decisions to make besides just, you know, can we open up quick? Can we get people hired back on? Can we get our place ready to go? You know, are we in a position to do that? And do we want to do it? 
And you know what? I'm so glad you're talking about this, Susan, because I think it, it, for a lot of people that aren't in the restaurant biz or the hospitality uh, business, they think, well, it's easy. Great. You can open. Just open. That it's that easy of a decision. But everything you just mentioned, it tells a tale of how serious and how difficult it can be. Um, yeah. 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 You know, let me just, I'll tell you, like, for an example, let's, when we close down for the outside dining, you have to lay people off. So those people are now struggling with how are they going to feed their family themselves. Some of them are going to go and try to find a job in another place. So now if you have lost employees, now all of a sudden you have to bring employees back on. But some of those people have gone, and maybe they have found another job. Or maybe they're too nervous to come back to work. Now you have to hire someone new. And train them. And train them. So it's very expensive for the restaurants to do that. And, you know... You have all the safety protocols and all the issues that have to be dealt with to make sure when you open back up, everything is in place so that your team is safe, yeah. the customers are yeah. safe. So there's much complication about it. And is the community, is the Los Angeles community willing to go out? So now you bring people back, you open back up for those hours, you bring on more staff to be able to hopefully handle a, a little bit of an increase in business. But if you don't get the increase because... It's sudden, and the weather's cold, and vaccinations aren't happening. Now you've brought people back on, but is there business? So yeah, it's a and, big question. And you buy food that if, uh, yeah, if, if, the, if the business doesn't uh, meet with what you bought, then all of a sudden you've got food that spoils, and you've got to pay people that are, that are going to be – I mean, yeah, it is a, it is a big, big deal. Um, Susan, so I'm wondering, um, how are you planning to respond to the lifting of the stay-at-home order? I mean, can, can we expect outdoor dining to open up again uh, for you by the end of this week? Uh, no, we are not going to open up by okay. the end of this week. At, we... at any of your restaurants? At any of them? No, with, you know, our, our Border Grill downtown is not open to the public and has not been open to the public okay. all along. It's been serving, though, for the last eight months. We have been working closely with FEMA, and we're feeding 9,000 meals a week to the homeless and to seniors. So our kitchen there has been functioning with some of our staff, but it's really with feeding those that are food insecure, and that's continuing. Sokolo is, we are not going to open this weekend. We want to take the next four, five, six days and evaluate, try to hear what are going to be, you know, is it 50% dining outside? What, if any, are the new, you know, uh, restrictions that are coming in? You know, obviously, we know what the restrictions were, and so we would be ready to do that. But we want to make sure we have the right things in place before we open back up. So we're evaluating right now, will we open on Tuesday? Will we just open on the weekends? Do we feel that we've got everything in place to make sure everybody's safe and following all of the precautions that are important? Um, You know, masks, shields, gloves, with anyone that comes in contact with customers. And what's the what are the restrictions that the city is setting again, or the county? Is so, it? Yeah. So I'm wondering, Susan. Do you know what those are? Do you anticipate uh, will there be changes? I mean, how did you handle safety protocols uh, before, and, and what precautions might you be putting in place when your eateries uh, open up again? Well, so all along, even with the to go, you know, anyone that comes in contact with any customers or any of the public is with gloves, mask, and shield and staying six feet apart. And people that are in the kitchen are masked and gloves, and they 
do as best as they can to work six feet apart. You know, everything is sanitized, you know, over and over and over. So we're following those same restrictions. As for outside dining, you know, the the restrictions before were that it was you're at 50% capacity outside. So if you had 50 seats, you could only seat 25 people. Mm. Um, obviously, the six feet uh, rule that was in place, we followed that, but even more so because you were even still doing 50% of the uh, seating capacity. So those are what we know now. There was a 9 o'clock curfew in many places. We were closing at 8 p.m., um, because we didn't feel that there was the demand to justify staying open later. And um, so as far as we know, that's what we think the restrictions are. We are waiting through this weekend to see are there going to be tighter restrictions placed before we go ahead and do anything. Now, you know, there, there is not a lot of data about the risks of outdoor dining, but most health, health officials agree that uh, anytime you bring people together for any period of time, and masks are off when eating and drinking, that the risks will increase. And not all of your colleagues in the industry followed the rules before. So I'm wondering, Susan, what would you like to see collectively from the industry as we move forward when it comes to ensuring people's safety for, for customers and your employees? Well, I'll tell you, the most important thing I believe today is that if we can figure out how, obviously, first and foremost, are the healthcare workers to get them vaccinated. But if we want restaurants open, we need to get our restaurant workers the ability to get vaccinated. It's, as we know, it's almost impossible to get an appointment. But for someone who's working a job right now, there's no way you can be on your computer, on your phone to try to get an appointment or that you can go wait in a line you know, anywhere for four or five hours to get vaccinated. So I feel that that's the the biggest step would be if we could get our restaurant workers vaccinated so that they stay safe and the people they're serving stay safe. So that's, to me, first and foremost would be a huge step to be able to help in that. Um, and I think as an industry, you know, what what we what we can do is to make sure that our team are doing all the precautionary things that are important, which, like I said, I think are mask, double mask, a shield, gloves, making sure we're sanitizing everything. You know, but, of course, there is this question of when people take their, you know, mask off, I believe that, you know, if you're going out to eat, you know, when a server comes to the table, your mask should be on, and when the server's gone... You know, if the people... Ideally, right? Ideally. So I, you know what? I've, I've walked past restaurants where I don't see that happening sometimes. So it's like it's, it's, there's an ideal world and then there's the reality of what human beings do. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's what we're seeing, you know, all across the country. And, you know, people that are walking around without masks. I agree. It's, you know, I think it, it is the res- it's the responsibility of each person to understand that when they're out there without a mask... They're being irresponsible, whether they don't care whether they get sick, but they're not worried about, you know, the person that they're walking past or that they're sitting in front of. So that is a huge responsibility. On the other hand, the flip side of that is we have a responsibility on many levels to the people who are part of our family, our restaurant family. They're struggling to be able to pay their bills, to pay their rent, to get food on the table for their family. So they want to work. 
They want to be careful and safe and work. But we need to make sure we're creating a safe environment. So our team, our our general manager is really trying to stay on top of when customers are being not responsible to making sure that we sweetly address that. And like, sweetly address that. <laughs> I mean, they are customers. I guess you don't want to completely alienate them, but at the same time, we're, we're all fighting for our lives here, too. Right. Well, you know? yeah. I mean, at this point, it's, you know, you need to have your mask on. When you're not, you know, when you're not eating, yeah. you need to have your mask on so Su- that we protect the people who are working for That's us. There's no question. Susan Feniger, uh, co-chef and co-owner of Socolo Restaurants in Santa Monica and Border Grill with locations in L.A. and Las Vegas. Susan, thank you very much. Absolutely. Thank you. More Take Two coming right up. Stay with us. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and streaming at kpcc.org. I'm Martinez. A lot of changes on the way in 2021. Now, for people here in Los Angeles, one of the most anticipated changes is a new relationship between L.A.'s law enforcement and communities of color. Well, at least hopefully. Thing is, though, what would that look like and how much police presence is actually necessary in a city this year? Overall, crime is down by 9 percent comparing 2019 to 2020, and that's according to stats released by L.A. Mayor Eric Garcetti and police chief Michael Moore yesterday. However, homicides were up by over 36 percent, with more than half tied to gang activity. Today, we continue our series of conversations with experts and stakeholders, each giving their take on what's ahead when it comes to social justice reform. Joining us is Professor Georgia Leap, Executive Director of the Health and Social Justice Partnership at UCLA. She's also a policy advisor on gangs and youth violence for Los Angeles County. And Georgia, that stat up top about uh, gang violence is, is really jarring, but can you put that into context for us? As someone who's studied this issue for so long, how much crime does it truly represent in the city? I would say not as much as the headlines would seem to indicate. So if I'm a gang member and I see an open window and a bag of money on the other side of that window and I reach in through the window and pull out that bag of money, that's me, Georgia Leap, committing a crime. It's not Georgia Leap gang member. So right there, things get very, very fuzzy. I like to think of it more in terms of there seems to be a little more gang activity, but not to the extent that crime statistics would lead us to believe. Does that crime get lumped into gang crime? Unfortunately, sometimes yes. I think both the LAPD and the Sheriff's Department endeavor to make their statistics as accurate as possible. But as we've unfortunately seen, that is not always the case. Now, Georgia, as someone who studies law enforcement response to gang violence and alternative measures that don't involve direct police response, how would you characterize the side effect of those measures on neighborhoods? I guess what I'm thinking about is, is do residents generally say they, they feel like these measures make them safer or do they feel like they're just under a, a, a microscope, a negative microscope watch by officers? The trouble is when you have special units like gang units, 
This is when the community feels they are being watched. This is when the community feels the situation is adversarial. And that's where we get into trouble. Let's talk about the alternative measures. Key among those is the Gang Reduction Youth Development Department. And what we see with GRID, which is its acronym, are community interventionists as well as prevention measures that come together and work with residents, families, youth to really try to stem the tide of gang violence. And when those efforts are coordinated with the Community Safety Partnership, then residents, stakeholders, community members do report that they feel safe. Now, you mentioned the Community Safety Partnership. Uh, For people who have never heard of it, uh, Georgia, how does it work? It actually started 11 years ago in Watts. And the idea is that relationship building is at the core of public safety. It is about the community and the cops working together as partners. It is safe to say it is revolutionary because it really entails a reconceptualization of the role of cops. They are not enforcers. They are relationship builders that work together equally with community members. It is based on a whole idea that was developed by Chief Charlie Beck, Connie Rice, Susan Lee, the Urban Peace Institute. Uh, Chief Michael Moore has taken this to the next level in terms of the LAPD, and he is making it a department-wide strategy with CSP zones across the city. And even more significantly, he created Community Safety Partnership Bureau. That is an announcement of priority. So, Georgia, Community Safety Partnership Bureau sounds like a simple idea, right? But it's confusing, I think, that it's not part of a police department's standard operating procedure, that uh, officers should should maybe check in with residents uh, once in a while to see how they're feeling. Why do you think that has not been a bigger centerpiece part of the LAPD or even the L.A. Sheriff's Department's DNA? Your question contains its answer. It's the DNA. And the DNA of law enforcement is command and control. When you have just the facts, ma'am, mentality or command and control mentality, community and community partnership is a language that is not understood. So it is in the history, it is in the DNA, and that's why Chief Moore, quite candidly, that's why Chief Moore creating this bureau, I think it's safe to say there's probably even pushback within the department for this. But there is less and less pushback and more and more of a recognition that things must change. Talking to Georgia Leap, policy advisor on gangs and youth violence for Los Angeles County. Uh, Georgia, casting a, a cloud over any kind of reform always is money. And the city's and county's finances are pretty dire because of the pandemic right now. At the same time, politicians are still wrestling with protesters' idea of defunding the police and and what that means and by how much. So, Georgia, first off, do you believe defunding the police is necessary to reform? I'm going to go the pathway of Karen Bass, who said that is absolutely the poorest choice of words that we could have come up with. I sincerely believe that there has to be a reallocation of funding to alternatives like GRID, like social workers, like different first responders who do react and respond to community issues that involve safety but do not require law enforcement. And I do think we have to look at the budget. I think, unfortunately, we are going to be looking at a shrinking budget. So it means less money even to reallocate. But I think things have got to change. 
So, Georgia, considering that uh, there seems to be general agreement, though, that uh, there will be less money in 2021 and maybe even beyond, what reform measures do you think might be off the table only because of the issue of lack of money? Well, ironically, I don't think something like CSP is going to be off the table because it's cost neutral. I think there are units that have long held pride of place that are going to have to be shrunk as a result of the reduced budget. I also think that it's not an all or nothing choice. I think that Chief Moore, for example, is going to have to look at reducing the size of units. He may also have to look at reducing the size of administrative and support staff. And I do think it's a Sophie's choice within an organization that already feels embattled. But this is the choice we are going to be forced to make. Georgia, what do you say, though, to law enforcement leaders who say, well, if units shrink, that means that uh, danger could stretch? It's all in those three words, that could mean. Show me the data. Right now, what I hear over and over again is a sort of veiled threat. If this happens, there's going to be blood running in the streets. If this happens, there's going to be more crime. I haven't seen what it looks like. I haven't seen the data. Georgia, what should people keep an eye on to know that change is underway? They need to see a difference in the behaviors of law enforcement. They need to see a difference in the behaviors of cops on the street, in the car, as they interact. I also think they need to look at signals from the leadership. Michael Moore has been extremely clear that he is going to change and he has taken action. Talk is cheap. I think they're going to be looking for more than words. I also think the public is going to look if there are alternatives to law enforcement that are put into practice. People are also going to be looking very carefully at George Gascon. He has come out of the gate with a model to transform the office of the district attorney. And 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 he's gotten pushback, though, Georgia, a lot of pushback. What a surprise. Okay, there's an old Russian proverb that I think we should live by. It's not that we love the old. It's that we fear the new. Gascon did a great job. I think he came out of the gate. He said, bang, this is what we're going to do. And of course, there's pushback. I think that's great. Let's get the pushback out in the open. Let's fight it out and let us change. So, Georgia, how do we encourage people to keep the faith when that promise of change hasn't always paid off? Because I think there's got to be demonstrable change at the beginning. People can't keep the faith on air. I think there have to be things that happen on the ground immediately. I think that is, in fact, what was so significant about CSP. There are now models that have been on the ground for 11 years that we can point to, that we can have community residents talk about and give the kind of reinforcement to others that this can happen. We can hear about things like GRID out of the mayor's office and listen to the community interventionists and what they do in the community so that people can see and hear what actually exists out in Los Angeles on the ground. That's Georgia Lee, policy advisor on gangs and youth violence for Los Angeles County and professor of social welfare and executive director of the Health and Social Justice Partnership at UCLA. Georgia, thank you very much. Thanks for having me.
think it's safe to say that uh, 2020 took a lot from us. Uh, it took a lot of our time. It took a lot of uh, grief. It took a lot of happiness out of our lives in a lot of different ways. A year ago, Kobe Bryant, the plane crash, the actually helicopter crash happened a year ago. And it also took away people like Kobe who make life a little bit uh, more fun to live. We're going to get uh, our memories of Kobe Bryant a year out uh, when Take Two continues in about 60 seconds. Stay with us. How do I say goodbye to what we had? The good time that made us laugh, I'll wait them back. I thought we Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC. In most places, you get your podcasts. I'm Ian Martinez. A year ago today, Kobe Bryant and his 13-year-old daughter Gianna were killed along with seven others when the helicopter they were on crashed in the hills near Calabasas. The entire city of Los Angeles mourned the loss for a long time afterwards. Some are still mourning. And among the grieving Angelinos was my colleague and LAS columnist Eric Galindo. He penned an essay about it that aired on our show early last year. Uh, here's a clip. It's illogical, man. I don't know why I'm crying. But it also makes sense that the man who constantly wowed us with his feet would end up leaving us in disbelief once more. And Gianna, that hurts that much more. She was his legacy. More than any of the trophies and records, I'm shook. Eric Galindo joins us now. Eric, uh, nice to have you back. Hey, how you doing? Good, good. Now, it's been a, a year since the crash, and, and considering everything that has happened in the world since then, uh, that day really, for me, has not faded one bit from my memory. I still remember everything that happened that day leading up to me coming into the studio to talk about what happened. How's, uh, how's that time gone for you? <laughs> I feel like, man, we were so young back then, you know? Like, life was just so different it's changed so much since that day but you're right like in many ways still listening to myself and the pain in my voice is just it's crazy to think about that that was a year ago because it does feel like it happened last week or something you know yeah, it's still very, very real. I mean, LeBron James and Anthony Davis, uh, they both have said that they're still having trouble with his death. Those were uh, their words. Uh, how has the acceptance process been for you, and how do you feel it's gone for Los Angeles? You know, for me, it, the morning Kobe has evolved. You know, I think when he, when he first passed away, it was a shock, and it was like losing a part of my own childhood, my own, you know, connection to the city and losing this legendary icon that felt almost immortal. And over the last year, I've grown to see, you know, Kobe as a person and understand through my own, you know, dealings with all the loss that we've experienced because of coronavirus and just sort of kind of understanding him you know, feeling more for Nessa Bryant and 
his family and the people who are really close to him and just trying to understand that he's like, a, he was a person, you know, he was a dad. He was a nerd. He was this, you know, very talented person. Like just all the things that he was as a person instead of trying to think of him, you know, as like the iconic Kobe soaring across the free throw line for a dunk. Now, when I think about him, I think about him as a father, as a person, as a husband, as people's friend, you know, yeah, girl dad. I mean, that that became a thing after after Kobe died. And it's funny, though, Eric, because you're right. I mean, I think with someone like Kobe or anybody else that is uh, that much a high-profile figure, especially an athlete, we only know them as their athletic selves, right? The, what they do on the court, the championships that they bring. It really, I mean, I, I knew what he was doing with Gianna, how much he was involved in her life and how much of a fan and an advocate he was for a women's sports, but I didn't really know how deep it went until after he died. And, and isn't that weird how that works? You don't really get to know someone sometimes, especially a celebrity until after they're gone. Yeah. Cause I think because, you know, when we have them around everything that we're seeing, we're kind of seeing through the lens of like, as a fan. So when we saw him with his daughter, it was like, Oh, that's so dope. Like Kobe's so dope. He's with his, his daughter. He's teaching her the game, you know? And when you look back at it afterward, you're looking at it like, oh, man, that was a dad with his daughter, you know? Like, I think about Vanessa all the time, like, how how hard it must be. I wonder how she's dealing with it, you know? And and I think that that's where it changed, where at first it was really like, oh, how are we going to do this? How is LA going to do this? He united a lot of Los Angeles, you know? The Lakers do that. The Dodgers do that in a city that's often divided, Um politically and socially and you know there's a lot of class differences here the lakers and the dodgers have always been a uniting force and the lakers especially because kobe magic like they, they won a lot you know and that's how we see how i saw it at first and then after i just think about like the people who really lost someone that day that they knew and that they were used to seeing every day like vanessa and his kids and his and his close family and friends like that breaks my heart still just knowing how I miss the people that I've lost this year. I, I, I think about it in those terms. Yeah. For Vanessa Bryant, the Kobe's wife. I mean, she's, if she ever wants a day where just to, just to not think about everything that happened, it's impossible, right? She, she's going to get reminders of this pretty much uh, for the rest of her life. Uh, everything that happened and, and Kobe's not that she ever wants to put Kobe out of her mind, but you know, I, I can imagine that for a second, if you're grieving over someone that, you know, 10 minutes of, of not thinking about it uh, might help, but it's impossible for her. I think. Yeah. I think, I think for sure. I think it's, it's going to be like, you know, the way I've dealt with grief in my life is to just accept that it's always going to be a part of you. You know, it gets easier to carry it, but it doesn't, you know, you, it feels like a mortal wound and you just have it forever. And, and I really feel a lot of empathy for his family and friends. Like, and, I think that Vanessa has handled it very well in a, in a way that's also helped the city heal because I think we all follow her Instagram post and we're just kind of waiting to see what she's doing, especially on a day like today. We're like, what is she going to say? What is she going to do? I hope people are nice to her. Um, and she's, she's been like a real like G like she's a champ. And I, and I, I really respect everything that she's done since Kobe passed away, the way she's handled it. You know, the Lakers won the NBA title last year. Um, as a Laker fan, Eric, how did you square 
Kobe's death, you know, the worst thing that can happen, really, if you're a Laker fan, to the best thing that could happen, the team actually winning a championship? I thought it was really healing, to be honest, because I thought that um, L.A. really needed that. You know, like I felt like I teared up when they won and I knew that how much it would mean to the city. Um, and it, and it's been such a such a year, you know, Kobe's death sort of underscored the crazy tragedy that we were going to experience and the crazy duress that we were going to experience as Angelinos, as Americans, as humans. And to see like something good happen that you know he would have loved, that you know he would have been, like, number one in line to shake Braun's hand and to shake AD's hand. I think that, that that really felt healing to me. Like, I felt like I had entered... Yeah. I think with that championship, I entered another stage of, of the morning. You know, it was like a, an acceptance, for sure. Kobe would have been first in line, but behind Gianna. I think Gianna, his daughter, probably would have <laughs> shook uh, Anthony Davis and, and uh, LeBron James's hand first. Uh, that's not oh, LA. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. oh, absolutely. Yeah, she would have been. She have boxed out Kobe, her own dad, <laughs> to got to them first. Uh, that's uh, LAS columnist uh, Eric Galindo with his memories of uh, Kobe Bryant a year out from his death. Uh, Eric, as always, thanks a lot. Thanks, Eric. All right, get ready for the rain that uh, should be coming anytime. Uh, please, uh, if uh, you have any rain thoughts, any thoughts about some of the things that are going to be happening over the next few days, please uh, tweet it into us. Uh, you can find us at Take Two. That's at Take Two. You can find me there as well at A Martinez LA. That's at A Martinez LA. That's good for Twitter and Instagram for your social media convenience. Thanks for listening. Thanks for trusting us with your time. Take Two back tomorrow at two. Talk to you then.